right? Just like the historical document. I may not be able to explain why this document is true, but some historian can. And if he has confirmed it to be true, and, and a wide range of historians have confirmed that document to be true, I may not understand their reasoning, but I can now believe, based on good reasons, all these historians and their testimony, that this is a true document, and therefore what it says is true. Hello and welcome to the show. This is part two of my series, Working Through Armin Navabi's book. Here we go. Let's, oh, I gotta click that. All right. Working Through Armin Navabi's book, Why There Is No God. 20 simple responses, uh, tw- simple responses to 20 arguments for the existence of God. And this is part two where we're looking at chapter two, uh, where he addresses the argument, God's existence is proven by scripture. So with this series, what my hope is, is to kind of look at these arguments that he presents in the book. Now, these are simple responses to 20 common arguments. I said last week in part one that I don't think these are necessarily the best arguments. And so hopefully part of this series is to look at these arguments that are very common. I've heard Christians say this, and obviously Armin has as well. And then to ask the question, is this an argument that we should use? Uh, Maybe it is a good one and his objections don't go through and we can look at that. Maybe it's an argument that we can use with some modifications or maybe this isn't an argument that needs to be discarded. And so uh, that is kind of how I'm uh, approaching this to hopefully help Christians and atheists both better understand these arguments. And I think that this chapter is a good example of an argument, as least as how he presents it, an argument that Christians should not use. And then hopefully then... um, Uh, addressing how to make it better and how this can be a good argument. So thanks for joining me both on uh, Instagram Live and on YouTube. My name is Ryan Pauly and this is the show Think Well, training you to think well about the Christian faith as well as the culture so that you can engage the culture well. Again, I do a lot of um, um, interviews uh, with scholars on YouTube and those are just posted on YouTube, not Instagram, but here on Instagram, I'm trying to... um, uh, address these sort of, uh, or address this series, uh, trying to help you think through these common objections and trying to give you more apologetic content as well as exposing you to objections from skeptics. And so that is uh, what the show is going to be today, as well as at the end of kind of my prepared comments based on chapter two, I'm going to be taking your questions. So one question did come in ahead of time on Instagram, but if you also have questions, you can post those in the chat, whether you're watching on YouTube or Instagram. If you're listening after the fact on a podcast or radio, well, you'll have to, uh, you just have to catch this live. So, um, hey, Maven True, thanks for being here. Thanks for the comment. And um, and Slam RN, thanks for being here as well. So with that, uh, this book, as I popped up on the screen there a moment ago, uh, Armin Navabi, Why There Is No God, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God. Last week, we looked at chapter one, which discussed uh, the argument, science can't explain the complexity and order of life. God must have designed it to be this way. So kind of a form of the design argument. Uh, Chapter two then addresses God's existence is proven by scripture. So that's what we're going to be looking at here. Now, to start, he kind of phrases this argument or forms this argument in a way, like I said at the beginning, I think is very common, but is not good. (laughs) It's not the best. Christians. If you are just simply saying God exists, why? Because the Bible says so. That's not a good argument. Why do you believe the Bible? Because God said it's true. Why do you guys say, you know, it's like this is what an example of a circular reasoning uh, where you are just arguing in a circle where um, 
you just believe it because the Bible and the Bible is true because God said it and God said it because that's true. And it's just, you you never get to that justification. And so the way that he kind of presents it here is he, he says this, I'll, I'll read the second paragraph. He says, quote, this argument presupposes its premise. The people who hold up their holy scripture as evidence are the same people who've already believed its contents to be true. In doing so, it fails, it falls into the fallacy of begging the question, a form of circular reasoning, where an argument's question presupposes its answer. This is no different than saying this is true because I believe it, which hardly counts as evidence. So I would agree initially here uh, that this is not a good argument. You can't just say it's true because I believe it. However, here's the pushback that I would offer. To use the Bible as evidence is not always circular reasoning or begging the question. The issue is this, and now he says this in the very next section, where he talks about the documents themselves are not self-authenticating. He says, just because something is written in a book does not mean it's true. This is obvious. So here's where I would like to stop and say this. If it is so obvious, which it is, that just because something is written in a book doesn't make it true, right? There are a lot of books of Harry Potter and fantasies and fairy tales and all this kind of stuff uh, that's written in a book, and that doesn't make it true. Because this is so obvious, should we not in our conversations assume the best about someone that that's not what they mean? When someone says, I think God exists because the Bible says so, is not equal to saying, I think Pinocchio exists because that book says so, or I believe Curious George exists because the book Curious George says so, right? Uh, that's not the argument that they're making. Instead, what he says in the very first paragraph is that many religions have certain holy books that are revered, revered as true accounts. So when a Christian says, I believe that God exists, and you ask why, well, because the Bible says so, it's not simply because the Bible says God exists, therefore he does. It's because the Christian believes this document to be a true account of reality that then it does provide evidence or a reason to then believe that the God exists. If, if the Bible is true and it says that God exists, then that means God exists, right? So in the same way where you say, look, I believe that um, some huge historical battle was fought. Why do you believe so? Because my history book says so. Right, It's not true just because the history book says so, but if the history book is true, if it's reporting a historical event, then that is evidence or a reason to believe that that battle actually took place. Now, do you have to know the reason for everything? Right. In the sense of uh, what I mean by that is, is, is um, if a historical document says that some battle was fought and I say, look, the battle was fought. Why do you believe that? Because the historical document said so. Well, how do you know the historical document is true? I guess I don't. I don't have a good reason. But that doesn't discredit that document. Does that make sense? I don't know if, I, <laughs> if I'm explaining this well, but I may not know why that document is a true document. But if I believe that document to be true and the document says this battle was fought, then that's a reason to believe that the battle was, battle was actually fought. Now, others can come along, historians can come along and explain why that document is reliable. And if it is a reliable historical account and it says the battle was fought, then that's proof or evidence towards the fact the battle was fought. And I think the same that can be done with the Bible. To say that God exists and why? Because the Bible says so. If, if that is based on the fact that a Christian says, look, I think the Bible is true. And the Bible says that God exists, therefore he does. And you say, well, why do you think the Bible is true? Christians may not be able to give an answer for that. Now, I think we should be able to, but we may not. Just because a, that specific Christian can't answer the question of why the Bible is true does not mean that other Christians and scholars have not answered it. 
right? Just like the historical document. I may not be able to explain why this document is true, but some historian can. And if he has confirmed it to be true, and, and a wide range of historians have confirmed that document to be true, I may not understand their reasoning, but I can now believe, based on good reasons, all these historians and their testimony, that this is a true document, and therefore what it says is true. And so I may not have to know that myself, even though I think we should. So I don't think, if I'm making sense, that simply claiming that the Bible proves that God exists is circular if you're not saying it's he exists simply because the Bible says so. But instead, if you assume that what they mean is, I believe the Bible is true, the Bible says that God exists, therefore he does, that's not a circular argument. And so I think the fact that he says, look, just because something is written in a book does not mean it's true, and this is obvious, this should help us have a better understanding to assume the best about someone, not the worst, that when someone makes this sort of argument, God exists because the Bible says so, Assume that they're not claiming that simply because the Bible says so, he exists, but they are assuming that the Bible is true and makes his claim, therefore, it is reliable. Now, he goes on to say, the existence of Scripture does not automatically prove anything about the veracity of the, what the Scripture contains. That is true. Just because it exists does not mean that what is written in it is true. We have to have reasons to support the fact that this document is true. As he says here, and I agree, documents are not self-authenticating. Just because it's a document doesn't mean it's true. You have to have external evidence pointing to the truth of scripture. Now, I'm not going to go over all that here. I have a lot of videos on that. And if you want to kind of take a pause through the series and talk through that, we can a little bit more. But that is uh, what we need to do is look at that external and internal evidence pointing to the fact this is true, not just because the document exists. Now, he uh, addresses this, though, and he says, look, the problem, though, is not only is scripture not self-authenticating, but additionally, the scriptures themselves are rife with conditions, uh, sorry, contradictions. Um, and he says, look, these are written by fallible humans. Now, there's a few different ways that this argument has been played out. And so let's kind of just address a few different things. Some people say, because humans are fallible and humans wrote the Bible, therefore, the Bible must also be fallible. To this, I think a simple question can help them consider something different. You can ask something like this. Look, can humans, hey, oh, uh, Phantom X, good to see you back here. Um, the question is, can humans ever write accurately? Can humans ever write truthfully? So would you, would you apply the same argument to a science book or a history book? Uh, just because a human wrote it and humans make mistakes, therefore that book is filled with mistakes. Or is it possible for humans to have enough kind of eyes checking it and, 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 and be written accurately and they proofread it and all that kind of stuff that a fallible human can write something truthfully? And I think, the, again, the obvious answer is yes, that can happen. So this sort of kind of question can help us realize that just because a fallible human wrote something does not mean that it automatically is fallible. Now, that, that argument is not necessarily being made here. It's just a side point based on the fact that he mentioned that the books are written by fallible humans. Uh, just, you know, the humans can still write accurately. Now, the next section then he goes into is to lay out some of these contradictions. So this is a helpful thing. If, if someone says, um, hey, uh, the Bible is filled with contradictions, it is helpful then to say, to not respond by saying, no, it's not, it's all true, but say, Okay, like, can you give me an example of one? Like, let's actually open up our scripture and let's look at these examples, which just reminds me, I never opened up my Bible here on my computer. I was busy getting a different video ready to play for you, and I never opened up the Bible uh, to be able to 
uh, pull these verses up for you. So let me pull this up as we chat. But he says, look, uh, every holy book is full of internal errors, inconsistencies, and different accounts. This makes sense when you consider that these books were pieced together by multiple authors over the span of centuries. If scripture was a document describing historical reality, the basic facts should be consistent from one account to the next. Now, I would argue that it is consistent. I think that the examples that he presents are maybe not the best. And if you have heard of other examples and you want to throw those in the live chat, uh, I'd be happy to kind of look at those as well. But we're going to look at what he mentions here. So here's the next paragraph. He says, quote, some biblical heirs are inconsistent with the observable laws of the universe. For example, Genesis 1, 1 through 19 states that God created the heaven and the earth on the first day of creation. The sun, uh, the stars, sun, moon, and other planets were created on the fourth day, a full day after creation of the seed-bearing plants. This order makes no sense as plants require, sorry, I skipped ahead, sunlight to grow, even if you ignore the scientific fact that the sun and the stars existed long before the earth and flowering pants. Now, this objection of the inconsistency of how the Bible has an inconsistency with the observable laws of the universe is only an objection against young earth creationism. Now, young earth creationists will also have a response that God created light. And so the seed bearing plants did have light. Um, it just wasn't the sun. There was some other light source, they would argue. And so you still could have seed bearing plants having light, requiring that sunlight to grow, just the light wasn't coming from the sun, it was coming from some other source. So a young earth creationist would say, look, there's no inconsistency here because there was still light for the suns to do photosynthesis to grow, even though the sun was not yet created. However, from an old earth creationist perspective, um, an old earth creationist would believe that the sun was created prior to day four. Uh, that in Genesis chapter one, when it says God, um, um, God made the heavens and the earth in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, that that is a description of God creating the whole universe, including the sun, the moon, the stars, and all that kind of stuff and the earth. It is on day four, which says, let there be the lights in the sky that word let there be, in other words, can be made, uh, uh, described as it became visible. And so it's possible to interpret, and an old earth creationist would interpret, the fact that uh, it wasn't that the sun, the moon, the stars were created for the very first time out of nothing on day four, versus rather it was only made visible, that the atmosphere went from being opaque, not being able to see through, then on day one it says, let there be light. The atmosphere became translucent to where light was coming through, but you couldn't tell what the light source was, to then on day four, the atmosphere became maybe transparent to where now you can see the source of the light. That is how like a Hugh Ross would interpret this verse. And so uh, it's, it's helpful to point out and realize that when we're kind of finding these inconsistencies in scripture, sometimes that inconsistency is only against a certain interpretation of the Bible versus there's a whole range of other Christians who believe a different interpretation, like an old earth creationist, that this uh, scripture passage would not necessarily contradict if that makes sense. Um, he then goes into examples uh, based on how there are contradictions in the Quran. Now, he is a former Muslim, and so he's kind of addressing not just uh, the Christian God in this book, but he's also talking about uh, the Islamic God. Now, I'm going to um, not address that contradiction here because I'm not a scholar in Islam and trying to reconcile these certain contradictions. Uh, we're just going to stick to the biblical account here for now. 
Now, let me open up this. Like I said, I forgot to open up my Bible because I want to address um, some specific examples that he brings up here. And I want to pull up the verse and have you be able to see it yourself. All right. Matthew 27, 57 to 60. So it says in Matthew 27, 57 to 60, it says that uh, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. And you can see that here on the screen. Hey, there it is. That worked. When it was evening and a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself has also become a disciple of Jesus, he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean, fine linen and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. Okay, so clearly Matthew 27, 57 to 60 says, Joseph of Arimathea buried the body of Jesus. Now he says in Acts 13, 27 and 29, it says he was buried by a different group of people. Let's read Acts 13.27, since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. They found no grounds for the death sentence. They asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So the question is, they put him in the tomb. Who is the they that this is referring to? If you go back to here, the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, they wanted to kill Jesus, but because they couldn't, right? They, they found no grounds for him. Then they asked Pilate to have him killed. So who is this? This is the Jews, right? It's the Jews that wanted to have Jesus killed. And so they asked Pilate to kill Jesus. Um, so it's the Jews that wanted to have him killed. And it's just Jews that then took him and buried him. So we go back to Matthew 27 and say, okay, does this reconcile with what Matthew 27 says? Now notice it says, uh, Joseph, a man named Arimathea, who came from himself, a disciple of Jesus, he approached Pilate and asked for the body. Now I have this somewhere else. Now, now this is going to take a little bit because it's now in Luke. There was a good man, a righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin who had not agreed with their plan of action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So here's what's fascinating is, okay, now who is this man, Joseph? He is a member of the Sanhedrin. That is, that is a Jewish council. And so if Acts is saying that a group of Jewish members took the body of Jesus and buried him. And Matthew says it was Joseph. Luke then connects the dots and says, yeah, this Joseph who took him is a member of the Sanhedrin, part of the Jew the group of Jewish people. Um, so there is no contradiction here because Joseph was part of the Jewish group in Judea who, you know, and so it's not a different group. Now, the next example is <clears throat> that he lists is how many, this is super common, how many angels were at the tomb. If you look at Matthew 28, Starting in verse two through five, there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were shaken by fear of him to become like dead man. Notice here where it says there was an angel. It doesn't say there was only one angel. It says there was an angel. Now in Mark 16, same thing. Verse, he says here, verse five, Mark 16, verse five, when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. So that now in Mark, Matthew says there's an angel. Uh, Mark says there was a young man and it describes it. Now, when you look at Luke 24, verse four, 
While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in a dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bound down to the ground. So now Luke says there were two. John 20, verse 12, says, She saw two angels in white sitting there. Jesus' body had been laying, and one on his head, the other on the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? So here, uh, Armin of Abi writes in his book, Matthew 28 and Mark 16 report that the women at Christ's tomb saw one person or one angel. Luke 24 and John 20 say there were two. This is therefore an inconsistency in these documents. Now, I think that this would be an example of trying to, again, find something problematic and reading the Bible and I think applying a standard to the Bible that we would not apply to any other document. Why do I say that? Think about it like this. If I said, I went to, I went to speak at a youth retreat and there were about 150 students there and, and I was able to give five lectures and two Q and A's and we had a wonderful time. And then I talked to someone else and I said, yeah, I was at a youth retreat and there was one student and the student asked me a question about the Trinity. Now, would you say that there's an, sorry, excuse me. Would you say that there's an inconsistency in these stories? Because the first one I said there was 150 students, and the second one I said there was a student. And I, if I said, hey, there was a boy, and he came and asked me this. And then there was a girl, and she asked me, is it faking it to read your Bible when you don't want to? No, those are not inconsistencies. Because I'm not saying, now here's where there would be an inconsistency. If I said I went to a youth retreat and there were 150 students, and then I said I went to a youth retreat and there was only one student, that would be an inconsistency. But what we realize is that what you do when you tell stories is what's called spotlighting. You highlight one person for an event or for something specific. And so in Matthew and Mark, it says, look, there was an angel. If there were two angels at the tomb, is it also true there was an angel? There was one angel. Well, of course, yes. If there were two boys, is it true to say, hey, there was a boy at the tomb or there was an angel at the tomb? Yes, of course. Just like if there were 150 students at camp, then I can say, hey, there was a student at the camp. There was a boy at the camp. There was a girl at the camp. I'm not saying there's only one boy or one girl. And so it seems like, you know, this is a super common objection. So it's absolutely right in writing this book as simple responses to 20 common arguments. This is a very common argument that sometimes people make of just the Bible says so. But this is also a really common objection that gets repeated over and over again that I think has a simple response. We use language like this every day and no one calls each other out for inconsistencies because we realize if there were 150, then there's also one. If there were two, then there was one. And so some people, for whatever reason, say, hey, there were two angels, because there were. Just like sometimes I say, hey, there's 150 students at camp, because there were. And other times someone says there was an angel at the tomb, just like I said, there was a boy at the camp. And those are both true things, true statements. There's no inconsistency there. And so these are some of the examples uh, that I think that we can we can look at to try and understand or, or recognize or, or these are examples that are often given and that when we look at, we recognize that there is no true inconsistency here, that there are ways of reconciling them. So those are examples of, okay, not only are documents not self-authenticating, and I agree with you there, but we do have evidence to support what is written in scripture. Uh, then he says, but it's full of contradictions, uh, at least the contradictions that he's listed. I've tried to at least give a, a, a thought to a way in which we can reconcile them. Uh, the last uh, argument that he makes here in response to this, um, uh, the last objection, I guess, that he makes in response to the argument that God's existence is proven by scripture is that religious texts are man-made and fallible. 
Now he says here, uh, there's a simple explanation for the errors in the Quran and the Bible. These documents were written by humans and in many cases were stitched together from oral traditions and transcribed decades or even centuries after the events described. Bear in mind also that the books of the New Testament or the books of the Bible are largely anonymous. Names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were added after the fact by editors and scribes. The actual identity of these authors is unknown. So this is the first one I want to address. And I want to show you a video that I spent my time uh, editing and looking at uh, that I think responds to this. Is it true? This is a very common response that the gospels are anonymous. Now, why would we say this? Well, because the names of the writers are not embedded in the gospels. Nowhere do we say, I, Matthew, write this document or I, Luke, write this document. But is it true to say that therefore we do not know who wrote it? Now, what the video is not going to say is this. One response is to say this. There is nowhere in early church history and in, in documents about early church history, ascribing different authorship to the Gospels. The authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were always recognized by the early church to be the authors. And so even though their names are not embedded in the document, we don't have contrary evidence that these were anonymous. So it's just like if I write a letter and I don't put my name on it, but everyone kind of recognizes that I wrote it, sees that I wrote it, and we have an oral history about the fact that I wrote it. It would be crazy then to come back after the fact and say, hmm, that is an anonymous document. We don't know who wrote it. It's ignoring the fact of all of the testimony of the early church and all the testimony of those who witnessed this and are around during that time of saying, no, it was this person. It's ignoring that and saying, well, just because the name isn't on it, therefore, um, we don't know who wrote it and it's anonymous. Now that's the point though, that I want to show this video and respond to. I had an interview a while back with uh, Dr. Bill Mounts. He is a, a Greek scholar of the Bible. If you've ever taken uh, intro to New Testament Greek or anything of that nature, you probably use his textbook. textbook. It's one of them, it's on my shelf uh, back behind me. Um, very, uh, well-read, well-known, educated, brilliant scholar. He was on the translation committee for the NIV as well as the ESV. Um, and so he's been on translation projects and done a lot. So I had a chance to interview him to talk about the reliability of the Bible. And, and are we sure that what we are reading in English actually matches what was originally written? And he addressed specifically this claim that the gospels are anonymous because the names were not attached. And I asked him the question, what new discoveries have been made that can help us understand the authorship of the Gospels. And here is his response. Discoveries are uh, affirming the trustworthiness of the Bible. They're not, they're not, we're not finding things that are making us question the Bible. You know, a, a good example you mentioned earlier is are the Gospels anonymous? <laughs> My good friend, Simon Gathergall, sorry, um, wrote a really good article on the Gospels aren't anonymous. And he has really strong evidence that names were always attached to these things. And it's, it's not Craig William Lane. It's Craig Evans. Uh, actually wrote a really good book on this. And he said that every single manuscript that we have the beginning of has the name of the gospel writer on it. Hmm. So the names are not embedded. in. The, yeah, this, that's brand new information. Wow. So the, the names aren't embedded in the gospel, but they've always been in the manuscripts. All right. Interesting. That's... We have good reason to believe. Again, this is kind of example of what I talked about in the beginning. Here I have a trustworthy source who has this book and they've looked at the evidence and I haven't seen all the evidence for myself. But we can evaluate that claim 
It's not just believing it for no reason. Okay, let's look at this evidence. If we want, we can grab that book and kind of work through it. But there's good reason to believe that the names were always attached to the manuscript. And every single manuscript we have, that name was on it. And so to make this claim that the books are largely anonymous, that the names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John were added after the fact by editors and, and scribes, that is a claim that itself would need evidence to support. And if we have good reason to believe that all these manuscripts have the names on it, every manuscript that we have the beginning of has a name on it, that, and we have an oral tradition from the early church that these authors actually wrote these documents, then I think we have good reason to believe that these are the authors of the documents. And so to come along and say, actually, the, the actual identity of these authors is unknown would need evidence itself. It seems to contradict what we are aware of. Now, the second thing that he talks about of these texts are, are, are man-made infallible is this, quote, he says, um, biblical scholars estimate that the oldest books of the New Testament are Paul's letters written around 20 years after the date of Christ's supposed resurrection. Now, again, this is going to depend on what biblical scholars it is that you are referring to. When we look at this, here's an interesting argument. He recognizes here that the earliest documents uh, or the earliest letters that we have are the letters of Paul written about 20 years after Jesus, right? And so, yeah, most biblical scholars would put the letters of Paul in about the mid fifties. Um, and so um, if we have good reason to believe that Paul is writing in the mid fifties, that he then died shortly after that, uh, then we have to ask the question, well, what is Paul writing? What is Paul including? Now, in one sense, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and recognize that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I pass on to you what I received from others, that Christ died, he was buried, that he appeared to these people, um, and everything is in accordance with the scriptures. And so we have the gospel, the death and burial and resurrection really early, only 20 years after. But then Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm passing on to you what I received. And you have skeptical historians like Bart Ehrman and others who will say this probably comes within five years, four years of the event itself, when Paul went to Jerusalem and met with the apostles. And so we have early testimony for the key important details, not only coming 20 years after, but being a message that has been passed along from very early on. This does not give it time to get embellished or, or to grow in these certain ways. But the other argument I find to be interesting is this. In the writings of Paul, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it says this, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy his wages. So Paul is quoting scripture and saying, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy his wages. So then the question is, well, where does scripture say this? And if you look up the quote for the laborer is worthy his wages, it is only found in Luke 10, 17, where Luke 10, 17 says, stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you for the laborer is worthy his wages. So if Paul, as Armin is recognizing is writing 20 years after the fact and about the mid fifties, if Paul writing into in mid fifties um, is quoting Luke 10, seven and calling it scripture, then how could you then argue that Paul is the earliest you would have it, it, it follows logically that if Paul is quoting Luke and calling it scripture, then Luke has to be written earlier than Paul. 
Now he says this, he says, Paul was not present for any of the events described in the gospels. He did not know Jesus personally. That ignores the fact that Paul experienced uh, and uh, the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. It says the gospels themselves were written even later, between 30 and 70 years after the alleged death of Jesus. But here's the question. How can Luke be written after Paul if Paul is quoting Luke? Again, you can kind of check this, and I've, I've looked it up. And he says the labor is, the scripture says the labor is worthy its wages. You look up that quote, and the only place that I can find it is Luke 10, verse 7. And so this seems to be a solid argument that Luke at least has to be written before Paul, earlier than AD 50, and already being considered scripture by the early church by AD 50. Now, most biblical scholars recognize also that Luke was not the first gospel written. In fact, Mark was the first gospel. So if Mark is actually the first gospel and Luke is written within the first 20 years, pre-Paul, then Mark has to come even earlier than that. And so here, I think, is an argument that I've at least become convinced by for the early dating of the gospels rather than late dating. Often uh, scholars want to put um, the Gospels late after the destruction of, of the temple, the Jerusalem in AD 70, um, because again, the Gospels predict, as Jesus says, the temple will be destroyed. And if Jesus doesn't have, if Jesus is not God and he can't make that sort of prediction, then clearly the Gospels writers have to, add, have, to have added it later after that event took place. But if you recognize or believe that Jesus is God, that he has the ability to make a prophecy about a future thing, uh, then you can have an early writing. And I think then the evidence points to the fact that it was written early. I think hopefully that makes sense. The last thing that our man says here, and then we will get to the question that came in on Instagram and any other questions that you have. So you can post those in the live chat and I'll try my best to respond. The last thing here that he says is this, quote, Jesus's contemporaries were Aramaic-speaking, illiterate commoners. They could neither read nor write. So stories were passed around orally. Like all gossip, these oral histories are bound to have transformed over time by gaining embellishments, mixing up details, and forgetting important facts. Just like other legend, from the invasion of Troy to the tales of Paul Bunyan, these stories likely contain much more poetic license than actual history. So to this final objection, I would ask the question, how did you come to the conclusion that the, the contemporaries of Jesus, his disciples, could neither read nor write? Why? Now, what's often presented is that that culture at that time was very illiterate. True. It's claimed that about a scholars estimate about 10% of people could read and write. Okay, so if 10% of people could read and write then how then can you make the claim that his disciples couldn't? It's not that no one could read or write. There were people that could. We have evidence of Josephus, a Jewish person who wrote in Greek in the first century. So we have examples of Jewish authors writing in Greek and speaking Greek and reading Greek within the first century. And so to, to make this generalization, because most people at that time were illiterate, therefore... Jesus' apostles were also illiterate, is a hasty generalization. You're jumping to a conclusion that is not grounded in the evidence that you have. To say that 90% of people are this way, therefore this one person was as well, you can't make that sort of claim. That is a hasty generalization. If 10% of the people could read and write, then it's possible that Jesus' disciples were part of that 10%. 
We, all, we know from Jewish history that it was a, a huge impor- importance, uh, an emphasis to have education. Jewish people were educated. Um, not everyone, but at least a basic education. Uh, the, the practice of reading the Torah, the old Jewish Old Testament, was a very important practice. And so for these Jewish men who are following Jesus to have at least some education in being able to read and, and write these sort of things would make sense. Paul was a doctor. I mean, uh, Luke was a doctor. And so it would make sense then for Luke to have an education to be able to write these things accurately. Now, is it possible that maybe they got some help writing? Sure. Just like if I'm, uh, you know, uh, dictating something to someone uh, and they write it, I can say, you know, in a sense, I wrote it. And we have examples of this in scripture in which a scribe or someone helped write something that someone was saying. Um, But to say that they were illiterate commoners that could neither read nor write is not supported by the evidence. We have evidence that people could read and write during that time. We have documents. Obviously, we have documents from the first century and people writing in the first century like Josephus. And so to claim that no one could is not accurate. And therefore, some could. It's very likely the disciples do fit in that category. Now, then the second argument that he makes is to say, because it was passed orally, therefore, these stories are bound to transform over time. Well, that's possible. But the question is, is it also possible for stories to remain consistent? And the answer is yes to that, right? It's not like the telephone game, right? And this is the common argument. It's not like the telephone game where the intention is to say something that's very weird and to whisper it down the line to where no one could go back and check it so that you can see how radically different it is at the end. Right, we, we recognize, yes, stories do get embellished. But if you are trying to keep it accurate and checking for accuracy, and you keep going back to that original and checking it, then you have good reason to believe it has not been embellished. And we have examples of this in biblical documents where manuscripts separated by hundreds of years are almost identical with very, very, very little changes because their goal was to maintain its accuracy. And so I think it is, is, is um, uh, to just kind of say, well, because stories can change, and because other stories have been embellished, therefore these ones are as well, again, we have to ask the question, how did you come to this conclusion? What evidence do you have to support it? Simply making a claim is not the same as presenting evidence. We need to give evidence that the story was embellished rather than saying this story has unbelievable things, therefore it must have been embellished. Does that make sense? So this is a helpful thing if you, you know, reading Greg Kogel's book on tactics, asking that question, what do you mean by embellished and how did you come to that conclusion? Have you considered that stories can remain consistent over time as we share them? But then also, if we have, and here's I think the big key point, I'll finish with this. If we have these documents being written, as he says, by 5080, 20 years after, the question is this, are people still alive after 20 years that could check for the accuracy of these documents? And the answer is yes. So if it, for example, if in Mark or the Gospels where it says Jesus went to a town of Bethsaida and fed 5,000 people, that document then gets written 20 or 30 years later and it spreads into that town. Well, those people, many would have been there 20 years previously, right? Right. And so now if a document shows up in your town saying, hey, 20 years ago, Jesus fed 5,000 people in this town. And if that never happened, if that's an embellishment written in that letter, then you could easily say, no, he didn't. I was there. Right. That's like saying 9-11 never took place. Planes never flew into 9-11. 
right? Here we are in 2024. That's more than 20 years, right? That's now, we're now 23 years separated from that event. If you went to New York City and tried to claim that this is some sort of embellishment, there are people who are still alive that saw and experienced that act of terror in New York City that would say, no way, that's ridiculous. But the fact is, when the Gospels were written and started to spread throughout that region, they spread quickly, and we don't have historical records of people saying, what are you talking about? This never took place in Bethsaida. He never fed 5,000 people. We don't have that information. Instead, these documents spread and were considered to be accurate by the early readers. And so it's not like a telephone game where it's merely spread orally until all the people who were around at that time died off like a few hundred years later. It's not also uh, uh, spreading the story to people who are far away. So the example I often give of students of this is when I'm talking in a camp, it's like, if I called my parents after speaking at a camp up in the mountains and said uh, a, a skunk ran through the auditorium, my parents might believe me because I generally don't lie to them about that kind of stuff and they weren't there. But if I try and tell the students who were sitting in that room during my lecture after the fact, hey, remember when that skunk ran through here? They're gonna be like, mm, no. So if the gospel writers are sharing the story with people far, far, far away in other lands, then yeah, maybe you can convince them of these fairy tales of these exaggerations. The fact though is, is that these documents were written and passed through Israel, passed through that same area in which all these events took place, where the people who were still around could easily discredit it and show how it is false. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus appeared to 500 people, many of whom are still alive, although some have died. Why say that? Go ask them. They're still alive. They can testify to the truth of these things that is not an embellishment. And so I think that in conclusion, to kind of summarize what we've talked about here, I think that this argument that the scripture is evidence for God is not a bad argument. Now, if you're simply saying God exists because the Bible says so, and whatever the Bible says is true is true, therefore he exists, like that is not a good argument. But if you're saying, look, based on certain reasons of archaeological discoveries and historical evidence, I believe the Gospels and the Bible to be an accurate document. The Bible says that God exists, therefore God exists. That is not an unreasonable objection. And I think that his um, objections to it of the fact that documents are not self-authenticating, true. But we have external evidence that points to the truth of the Bible. The scripture is often inconsistent and accurate. I've at least tried to show on how his examples that he gives um, are not actual inconsistencies or inaccuracies. They're a misunderstanding of the text. And then finally, this idea that religious texts are man-made and fallible. Yes, they are man-made, uh, that a man wrote them, but humans can write accurately. And so just because a human wrote it does not mean it's inaccurate. We know who wrote it. It was written early and it was um, therefore did not have time for this embellishment. It was accepted by the early hearers, the people that were there. Sorry, I said I was done with this point, but think about it. In like the beginning of Acts, when Peter goes out and preaches after Pentecost, he preaches in Jerusalem. This man, Jesus, who you killed, he is alive. And what did the people do? Rather than going to the tomb and recognizing it's empty or it's, it's still occupied and saying, you're crazy. I was there. I saw Jesus die. There is his tomb. He's still dead. You're ridiculous. 2,000 people believe. They didn't go to some faraway land where they can convince people of these lies. They provided evidence and reasons to the very people who were there in the first place to confirm the details. And so I do think there is good reason to believe what the Bible claims, and therefore we can use it as evidence for God. So um, 
yeah, there is a response to chapter two. Now, again, if you want to get the book, it's super cheap on Kindle. It's only a few bucks. Armin Avabi, Why There Is No God, uh, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for God. I'm going to get to your questions in a moment. Uh, but if you want to get the book and kind of read the section and come up with questions, uh, that'll be fun. Next week, we're going to be looking at chapter three. Chapter three is that some unexplained events are miraculous, and these miracles prove the existence of God. Uh, after that, it, morality stems from God. Without him, we cannot be good people. Chapter five, believe in God would be uh, would not be so widespread if God did not exist. Chapter six, God answers prayers, therefore he must be real. Chapter seven, I feel a personal relationship with God, so I know that he is real. And uh, there's 20 of these chapters. And so we're going to spend 20 weeks going through this, working through it, and trying to uh, look at these common arguments and uh, seeing whether Christians should use them, whether we shouldn't use them, or maybe use them with some tweaks and uh, look at these uh, common responses that you may hear when you make an argument like this and hopefully helping you think through it so you're better prepared to respond and use good, solid arguments at defending and explaining the existence of God. So with that, I have a question that came in on Instagram, and then I'm going to do my best to get to your question. So if you're watching on Instagram or on YouTube, post your question. Hi, Riker. Um, post your questions in the live chat, and I will get to them. But here, let's jump to uh, what came in on Instagram, <clears throat> and here it is. Why... So-called believers claim the Bible is archaic and behind the world. I hear this a lot, and I heard this a lot in my research on gender and sexuality and transgenderism over this last year, that the Bible is outdated, it's misogynistic, homophobic, um, and it is in need of being discarded. And I think that a lot of Christians have bought this claim as well. That even as it says here, why are so-called believers claiming the Bible is archaic and behind the world? And I think the reason why, maybe there's a lot of reasons why. Let me offer a few thoughts. I think one can be this, is that many Christians are not taught a thoughtful, how do I want to say this? A thoughtful, beautiful picture of what the Bible actually says. We're not given the, the better yes or the reasons why the Bible claims something. We're just told no, 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 no. Let me give you an example. In my class, in my high school class, when I taught high school, um, I walked through the biblical view of sexuality and how the, how the Bible presents sexuality is beautiful and it is good and it is true, unlike the way the culture presents it. And then I asked three different classes of mostly Christian students, have you ever heard sexuality presented this way? And every single student said, no, not in school, not in church, not in youth group. We've never heard the Bible, the view, biblical view of sexuality presented in that way. It's often presented just like, you know, it's bad. Sex is bad. And so we, 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 if we have this very shallow understanding of what scripture says, and even like this oppressive view of what scripture says, that, that scripture is oppressive, it's restrictive to us, then we are going to believe that it's this archaic behind the world thing. It's just not with the times and we need to move on. And so I think that's one reason is that we, we give a very shallow understanding. I think the second thing that kind of works with that shallow understanding is that when we only, when we don't address the, the beauty and the richness of the biblical view of something, then we often see the culture's view is good and the biblical view is bad. And therefore it is shallow, archaic and in need of being discarded. And we think that we are constantly learning and growing and, and getting better. And so one thing that we need to do is, again, present that beautiful picture, but also recognize that the Bible is not to repress us. It is not this behind the world because the world is, is freaking. What we have to recognize 
is that where scripture disagrees, it does so for good reasons. That there's a way in which God has created us that has remained true and that we have the best flourishing life when we live in the way that God has created us to live. There is a freeing aspect of understanding ourselves in the way that Scripture says who we are. And so I think that sometimes we see the Bible as this archaic because it's this, again, this restrictive understanding. The common example I use is I ask students, is a train most free when it's on the tracks or off the tracks? And the answer is on the tracks. It's like, well, what if you said, well, the tracks are restrictive. The tracks only take the train where the train, you know, only one way and it has to go that way. It's very restrictive and it's not freeing. I want to free the train from the tracks and put it on the street. Well, then the train is just going to sit there and rust. The train is not made for the street. The train is made for the tracks. And so you trying to free it is going to cause it to not be able to do what it was created to do, which is to be on the tracks. And so well, the Bible and God's view of who we are builds purpose into us, we're created for a reason. And therefore, then that informs us of how we should be created. Hey, Mike, I'm answering your question. I just see that you joined. <laughs> I just started. Um, it then is going to restrict us by telling us if you're created for this, and there's a w- way in which you should not be used. So I think that a lot of students see the Bible as this archaic behind the world is because we see freedom. And I have students often define freedom. What does it mean to be free? To be able to do whatever you want to do. The Bible doesn't let me do whatever I want to do. And therefore it's behind the times. Let's get with the times. Freedom is this freedom to do whatever I want. Now, this is only half the picture of freedom. We understand freedom from, it's called freedom from, freedom from restrictions. If I'm handcuffed, I'm not free. But we often forget the fact that there's this thing called freedom for, doing what something is created for, using it for what it's created for. And this is something that protects, that cherishes, and that causes something to last longer and work better. When I use my coffee mug, my super common example, if you watch me long enough, you've heard these. If I use my coffee mug for what it was made to be used for, then it's going to last for a long time. If I use it as a hammer in a way that's not made to be used, I'm going to destroy it. And so we, I think, often see this aspect that um, if I have this sort of authority telling me how I should live because I'm created for a reason, that that is something that needs to be discarded. And that's often what's seen as this archaic way of thinking. And we need the updated way of thinking, which is do whatever you want. The problem is, is that is not the healthy, flourishing way to live. The second reason I think that the people believe the Bible is archaic is kind of what I addressed in this objection of the Bible claims that God exists, therefore he does, is uh, the argument he made about Genesis 1, is that we see all these scientific discoveries that uh, disprove different aspects of Scripture. And I would respond and say, no, it's not disproving aspects of Scripture, it's just disproving certain interpretations of Scripture. And so we have to understand two things. Number one, it is possible that our interpretations are incorrect and science is helping us better interpret the Bible. So for example, if you read Joshua chapter 10, where it says that the sun stood still, the sun and the moon stood still in the sky, and you believed in this idea of geocentrism, that the earth was the center of the solar system, the sun is moving around us, and therefore Joshua prayed that God would cause the sun to stand still, and it did, that the sun was actually moving and then stopped, um, That would be an incorrect view. Science comes along and says, no, the earth is not the center of the solar system. It's the sun. And yes, it looks like the sun is moving, but the sun is not actually moving. We are turning. This is not literal language, 
but it's what's called phenomenological language or language of observation. This scientific discovery of heliocentrism, sun is the center, we go around the sun, helps us better interpret or understand what is happening in Joshua chapter 10. That is not that the sun literally stopped, but maybe the earth stopped rotating or something of that nature. So we can use science to help us better interpret or understand scripture. Now then we have to also recognize though, is that science doesn't say anything. Science is based on data and it's people interpret that data to say different things. And so we also have to recognize that scientists and us humans who are interpreting scientific data have worldviews. And so I often see this online where, um, or someone made the claim on one of my videos uh, that any attempt at giving a non-naturalistic explanation of the world, meaning that there's a natural explanation, not supernatural, not intelligent, that it just is here because nature made it this way, is impossible because science can only give naturalistic explanations and only naturalistic explanations are accepted and therefore to give any sort of supernatural intelligent explanation is off the table. We have to recognize this is a worldview <laughs> that is presupposing what is possible and therefore then excluding explanations as not being possible, not because of evidence, but because of a pre-commitment, a prior belief based on a worldview of naturalism. But if you say, look, there could be a natural explanation for this. There could also be a supernatural explanation. What evidence do we have to support it? That's a very different sort of question where you are open-minded and allow for both possibilities. And so I think that also this idea of why people sometimes believe the Bible's archaic is that we sometimes adopt these ideas that science is purely the search for natural explanations about the natural world, and then we say, see, therefore the Bible contradicts science, therefore it can't be true. And I think the way that I try to approach this is this. If the Bible and science contradict each other, that means that either we're doing our science wrong or we're doing our biblical interpretation wrong. Why? Because God is the creator of nature and he is the author of scripture. And so if God, who's a God of truth, is the ultimate creator or author of both nature and scripture, then nature and scripture should agree. And so science, our study of nature, and our theology, our study of scripture, should then also agree. And if there's a disagreement, either we're doing our science wrong or we're doing a scripture reading wrong. So for example, if you read scripture and you believe that the earth is at the center of the solar system, we realize that's a wrong interpretation. If you look at science, uh, science believe our earth is eternal. The Bible says our earth and our universe is, is finite, is temporary, had a beginning. Now we recognize scientifically our universe did have a beginning, the Big Bang. So science has corrected and now lines up with scripture. Other times our interpretation of scripture lines up with science. And so I think some people believe it's archaic um, and behind the world because we think, hey, here's a scientific idea and we have to sit down and think about it a little bit deeper than just simply saying science says this is wrong, therefore it has to be, if that makes sense. The last thing I'll just say here is that this sometimes can fall under um, the, the fallacy or the view that whatever is most recent is best. Um, and uh, I forget what this is called specifically. It's blanked on my mind right now. But if you always think that what is most recent is best, then clearly a Bible being 2,000 years old, therefore is behind the world. Um, but this is... Oh, what is the term for this? If you know, and you're uh, put it in the comments. But anyways, that's not always true. Just because something is more recent is more is, does not mean that it is more true or better. Um, and uh, so we also have to recognize that as well. Sometimes is this idea of um, man, what is it called? I think it's helpful to kind of 
think through and ask the question. Now here's kind of then how do you then respond? Now I've kind of offered some reasons why I think this is not true. Now how do you respond to someone? So a code believer claims that the Bible is archaic and behind the world. You have to ask the question, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by it's archaic and behind the world? How did you come to the conclusion that it's archaic and behind the world? So not say thanks, Tiffany, not modernism. Ah, what is it's um John Stone Street uses the term all the time. Appeal to novelty. No. Um let's see if a quick Google search can help me out. Thanks for the help, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks, Phantom X. Um, but this is where we have to ask people, okay, how did you come to the conclusion? Why do you think that? What do you mean by it being archaic? Um, and then allow them to kind of speak into what they mean by it. And then that'll help you learn how to respond. And so I've kind of given you some general responses of what I've heard people make this claim. But the person that you're talking to may mean something very different by it. And so this is why it's so helpful. Ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Don't assume that you know what they mean by something. Ask them what they mean by it so that you can then accurately respond to what they're saying. And then you can maybe make those claims. Well, have you considered that just because something is more recent doesn't mean it's more true? Or have you considered that just because science says something is false doesn't mean it's false? I mean, there's been a lot of scientific theories that have been proven to be false. We're doing our best. Um, We have to look at the evidence and not just what someone says. And so uh, there's a few thoughts on that um, on that question that came in. So with that, we are over an hour. I hear that my son just woke up and I don't see any other questions. So I'm gonna sign off for now, but hey, I'm gonna be back next Tuesday, 2 p.m. Pacific time discussing chapter three on, what was chapter three? Oh, unexplained events are miraculous and these miracles prove that God exists. And so that's gonna be a fun conversation. Uh, there's also a ton of other videos that'll pop up here as well that can help you continue to think through other issues. And I just wanna challenge you and encourage you to continue thinking deeply um, because, hey, this is what we are created to do and this is how we make an impact in our culture. And so, hey, if this is something that's encouraged you, uh, like it, share, subscribe, um, and uh, pass it along. And um, and I just want to continue to be here to be a resource for you. And if you're listening on podcasts, come join me live. But you can also uh, write a review on podcast app as well and help get the word out. Uh, but hey, until then, I will see you next week. Continue thinking deeply about God, Jesus, Christianity, because they are worth thinking about. And that term almost just popped in my head. And it did it. I'm going to hit end. And it's going to pop up in my head when I walk down the hallway. Sorry, everybody. I can't think of that. But anyways, have a good rest of your week. I will see you next week. See you. Bye. Don't hesitate to follow your love